And so we're in Romans 12. I'll read verses 9 through 21 this morning <clears throat> for context. And um, so the apostle writes these words. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. <clears throat> Be of the same mind. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. <clears throat> Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Father, we ask that you open to our hearts and minds this morning the deep truths of this, your holy word, read in the presence of your own precious people. And so in his name we praise you. Amen. <clears throat> Leave it up to sinners to wreck something like love. Love. You can mess up love. Love can be hypocritical. It can be a pretense. It can be a sham. You know, it's interesting when you come to a verse like this, and many of the commentators go along with this, love without hypocrisy. That, that's obvious. It's almost like, duh. Right? Abhor what is evil. Okay, cling to what is good. We think we know these things, right? But Paul knows we don't. The Holy Spirit knows we need to go back and make some discernments. Are we really loving or are we hypocrites pretending to love? Do we really abhor evil? Do we even know what it is? Do we really cling to what is good or do we cling to a little evil? You see, Paul sees it as important for us to revisit these subjects. It's about examining ourselves. And so he does what he always does. He gives us doctrine first. We have 11 and a half chapters of doctrine <clears throat> to this point. And now he's telling us how to live the Christian life as he always does. He didn't slip up by just running off at the mind, telling Tertius what to write, right? He didn't just say, you know, I think I'll throw something in there about love. He was talking <clears throat> about worship. 
And so he puts his doctrine first. He's talking about worship. If you go back to the first two verses of chapter 12, and see, this is the benefit of a series. In a series, you get to take something and put it back in the context where normally when you have a memory verse, you remember it out of a context, right? But when you do in a series, you can always put the whole thing together. And so he gives us the doctrine, and then he gives the application. And so let's consider the order and the substance of the chapter. The first 11 chapters are doctrinal, and they provide for us the theological foundation for our faith, right? Our faith is given to us as a gift. We don't know all the theology behind it. We learn that later, right? We don't know much about Jesus when we first receive him, right? We learn more about him later. And it's like that with all of the Christian faith. But so long as we're in this world, we come together and we strengthen our walk with God by learning the background of our faith. And so he provides for us the theological foundation for our faith. So this section is a picture of the Christian life as it should be played out since we were converted. We were supposed to have changed. Did we fall back after a while? I remember we had a Christian lady in the church many years ago, and she had quit smoking, and that's what the Lord did for her. And I remember one one time, Pastor Ken, he got a little sarcastic, and he says, what has he done for you lately, though? You know, we have to continue to grow in the Christian life, and not just set our stake at each little victory. It's a moving on. As long as we're here, we're growing in faith. And we're researching the mind of God because he took the trouble and took the blood of the martyrs for the purpose of making sure we had it. When we pick up our Bible, I hope we remember the sacrifices it took to get it to us. Right? We won't be having the Reformation Fair this year. But in that fair, and we'll have it again, I'm sure, at some point. But... What we do is we act out certain skits about some of those men who were put to death just for writing the scriptures in a language that you can understand. We had an orthodox organization trying to make sure that you never knew what the Bible said. But it's open to us. It's a great blessing. We carry it around. It's on our phones now. Right? You know, I'm fearful of information. I wrote an article many years ago for the Christian Coalition called The Misinformation Age. That's when the Internet first came out. You kids don't know anything about that those days. It wasn't all that long ago, though. And I said, if you can spread information that fast, then you can be a bastion of misinformation just as easily. And I hope we all know that. Right? But we have the Word of God. And we have it in such abundance Friends, when we go before the Lord as a nation, right, the people of our nation, and the Lord shows us all the ways we could have found out what his will for us was and we didn't do it, friends, it'll be more tolerable in that day for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for you. And that's what Jonathan read this morning. We are implored by this apostle as Christians to put on a character befitting the saints of God. We're not the same as we used to be. We're a new creature. Friends, the the old 
habits, the old fears, the old affliction, the old pleasures, the old sins. That's part of the old man, as Paul calls our old self. We put on new things. We put on real love, Christian love, not the hypocritical variety. And we're going to labor over that somewhat this morning. We're to put on character befitting the saints of God. We are to be reformed creatures, but not just reformed. Paul says what? Transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're transitioning, friends. Can I get away with that this morning? We're, We're the original transitioners. We're transitioning from hell-bent sinners to heaven-bent saints. And there are behaviors that go along with that, that privilege. I'm a transitioner, and I want everybody to respect me for it. (laughs) The whole of this epistle harkens back to the first two verses. Let me read them for you. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice holy acceptable to God which is your mindful worship or as the new king James says your reasonable service and then he says in verse 2 do not be conformed to this world friends the world has a stake in conforming us and if we didn't see that in the last few years so graphically to reforming us, to conforming us, rather, to a certain image, easily led. Don't be easily led, not in your minds, not in your thoughts, and not just because you like one news carrier better than the other. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The the, the old mind is gone. You've got a new mind. Use it. Fill it with new thoughts. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So all that is said from now on in chapter 12 goes back to those two verses. Present your bodies bodies before God in worship. And conform yourselves to Christ and not to the world. It's an outworking of our own efforts, our own energy. We apply ourselves to the task We're to come before our God in worship. And we are to come not as needy sinners only, although we'll always be that, but we're to come, as he said, living sacrifices. Have you ever thought of that as an oxymoron? Friends, a sacrifice isn't living, it's dead. Right? We can define living sacrifice in a number of ways. The first way that comes to mind for me is that a sacrifice is not a living thing. It's a dead thing. That's the whole definition of it. It's a dead thing. It's a thing that's given up its life to pay a debt that is due. That's what all sacrifices are. It doesn't matter what religion you're talking about. You're sacrificing to a God because he desires recompense for your misdeeds. So you use a substitute, maybe an, maybe an animal. Maybe if you're a, 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 an Aztec, maybe it's another person. Human sacrifice. We've seen plenty of that. Maybe if you're from some of the old <clears throat> religions of the plains in the Old Testament, maybe it's a child sacrifice. Send your children through the fire to Moloch and Chemosh. 
and Beelzebub, right? Our world knows about sacrifices. Why? Because we have a consciousness of sin. That's why. We know we haven't measured up in some way. A sacrifice is an admission of guilt. A living sacrifice is a giving of ourselves to God before we die. We get to do it now. It's an awesome thing. No one else can do this but the Christian. We offer ourselves to God without literally physically dying. A living sacrifice is a giving of ourselves to God while we're yet alive. It is an obeisance. Do you know that word, obeisance? I use it sometimes. What it is, obeisance is a deferential respect. It's like worship, obeisance. A lifelong obeisance or mindfulness of what's owed to God, which is worship. We subvert our own desires and initiatives and take on his desires and initiatives. That's what we do. It's an exchange. You're not being conformed, you're being transformed, right? You're saved out of this crooked and perverse generation, Peter said in the book of Acts in his great sermon, and you're being saved into the household of God. The Christian life begins in the mind, friends. It's a thoughtful life. It's an intellectual life. You're transformed how? By the renewing of your mind, and your mind contains thoughts, right? So it begins as an intellectual, reasonable, right? Pertaining to your reason, affecting your reason. You learn things, and you live by them. So the Christian life begins in the mind. It begins in the thoughts. It, it begins by bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 7. But it doesn't stop in the mind. At some point, you realize you've got to present your body to Christ, a living sacrifice. He wants your whole being. He starts with your mind because your thoughts direct your life. You can't transform yourself without your mind how are you going to do that and your mind can't transform itself without information and in this case the word of god's the teaching it's the information so it doesn't stop in the mind it plays out in the fullness of our lives and so christianity becomes a living religion we live it out in our lives in our daily lives i hope you pray in your home with your children I hope you read the scriptures. Bring it out at dinner time and read a passage and pray to the Lord. Friends, this was what the Reformation was all about. Those things were illegal. You weren't allowed to do that without an official priestly presence. Because you know why? You'd mess it up. Christianity is a living religion. We live out our faith in the totality of our lives. In the case of the Christian sacrifice, it's not a dead thing that we offer to God. It's a living thing. You are all sacrifices to God. Offer yourselves up to him. I'm reminded of the plea of David. This is what I thought of as I came to this section. Do you remember the plea of David in, in Psalm 30 when he said, What profit is there in my blood? When I go down to the pit. In other words, if, if I die, what good am I to you? He dared to say this to God in a great prayer. 
He said, will the dust praise you? Don't wait for your death to praise God. Won't happen. Will the dust declare your truth? Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. And then he goes on and he says, for you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praise to you and not be silent. A living sacrifice isn't only not dead, it's not silent. It speaks up. Oh, Lord, my God, I'll give thanks to you forever. Isaiah said something very similar. He said, but you, Lord, have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. But she all, the grave, friends, she all cannot thank you. What good is a dead sacrifice to God? Death cannot praise you. There was one dead sacrifice that was good, and that was Christ's, and that's all. No other sacrifice is needed, because to, to sacrifice something else, right, to do penance, would be to imply that Christ's sacrifice wasn't sufficient, and it was sufficient. Death cannot praise you, he said. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for truth. The living, the living man, he shall praise you, Isaiah writes, as I do this day. And then he said, the father shall make known your truth to the children. The Lord was ready to save me. Therefore, we'll sing my songs with stringed instruments all the days of our lives in the house of the Lord. Pick up your stringed instrument and Sing to the Lord. Our lives are, giving up to, are given up to God before we die. Friends, if you wait to be a sacrifice to your death, it's too late. The sacrifice has been made once for all. Don't put Christ again to, to shame, the, the scripture says, right? And so the psalmist and the prophet speak of worship. They speak of congregational worship in the house of God. Their bodies are present in reasonable, intelligent worship. The living sacrifice gives itself to God while it's alive. Like David, I have prayed in my own personal life because of the severe lifestyle, that I, the severely sinful lifestyle that I had in my youth. I prayed that God would keep me around long enough to honor him the way I honored myself in my old sins and honored Satan. I actually prayed it when I was young. You know, I've, I've just turned the point where I've lived longer for Christ in years than I, than I did for Satan. <clears throat> so I prayed the prayer to God, particularly in my young Christian life, while the sins of my youth were still before my eyes as recent things as things that have to that point defined my life and my loyalties. It was hard to become a Christian. I had to put so many things behind, even people. But I found later on, as time went on, I could take some of them back for their sakes. <laughs> right? And so I asked God to give me another season of life that I might bring honor to him before I die. I wanted to be a living sacrifice. I didn't even know the term yet, but that's what I was asking for. 
Give me time, I would ask God, to make your creation of me a thing that lives for you and praises you and works towards the cause of Christ in the earth with the time I have left. I wanted to be an active part of God's great cause for humanity. In the formal sense, such a thing is called worship, friends. In the informal sense, it's called living and walking for Christ. Your whole life is a worship service to God. And so from the first verse in the chapter, <clears throat> the Christian's first response to God is one of relationship, right? We come first to him in recognition of who he is. He's something that until the moment of conversion, we did not know. We heard of him. Everybody's heard of Jesus. You ever notice, no matter what the argument is, no matter who the participants are, everyone wants to quote from Jesus as though they know what he said. And they'll pull him out of context. I mean, we had a governor who used Jesus' words to justify killing babies in the womb. You can do anything. And isn't it interesting that evil people want Jesus on their side? But you know why they do that? They want to show you that you're a hypocrite because you didn't know this. So know it before they get there. Study the scriptures and know the context that they left out when they tried to lead you astray with something as ludicrous and satanic as that. So we come to him because we recognize who he is in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. <clears throat> but now he is known. And because he's known, he is loved. And if that's not the case, get on your knees again and commit yourself to God. Because if knowing Christ doesn't increase your love and desire to know him more, I suggest to you that your conversion is not complete. He's loved, when he's loved, he's recognized as the only being in the universe worthy of worship. Remember, when <clears throat> Peter came out to Cornelius and he fell to his knees and he said, Cornelius, get on your feet. I'm a mere man. He's looking around like, don't worship me. You're getting it all wrong. I'm just a messenger. To worship God in the congregation of his people who have done who, the people who have already worshipped him for so many years and have now invited you in to worship with them as the very body of Christ. And not only that, but soon you'll be given the opportunity to, con to contribute with your own unique spiritual gifts. And that brings us to the place in chapter 12 where we left off last week. He talked about the spiritual gifts. Everybody's God-given talent to contribute to the church. You know, the more I think about the gifts, the reason every list is impartial, and I've made the point, every list of gifts in the scriptures is impartial. You can think of gifts that aren't listed there. But the reason that is, is because gifts are unique to the person. Even the teaching gift, though it's a it's imparting knowledge, that's the essence of the gift. But one teacher has a unique approach that the other teacher doesn't have, and he has a unique approach that the other one doesn't have. That's, like, that's why we can say, oh, I love to hear so-and-so preach. What should it matter who does the preaching? Because some people have a greater measure of faith than another. That's implicit. It's, it's explicit, rather, in the teaching of Romans 12 on the gifts. Prophesy in proportion to your faith. In other words, don't Go beyond what you know. 
So we're in the section on gifts, and there's a warning here about the gifts, and that's what this, these verses this morning are about. <clears throat> a second point of the Christian life is that we ought to be transformed, okay? And we can see this transformation extends naturally from the first part, which is reasonable service. We're not to act like the world anymore, not conformed to this world. We're not to live as we did before we made his acquaintance. You have to be careful of that. Everything you did before you made his acquaintance, you should query in your own mind and say, is that right that I should do that? And so old thoughts and old beliefs should be exchanged for new thoughts and new beliefs. Old desires, old forms of entertainment maybe are not acceptable anymore. And the change comes by teaching, friends. Hence, another nod to the gifts of the Spirit. The way you're transformed is by someone else exercising his gift of the Spirit in the congregation. That's how it works. It's all tied up together. But there's some ligaments that hold it together. And that's what these verses, in this verse, chapter 9, uh, verse 9, rather, is about. The change comes by teaching, and the gifts are only in the church. You can't be transformed to Christ alone. Ken used to call people that didn't come to church Lone Rangers. And when they'd show up after many, you know, Sundays of missing, he'd call them Skip. (laughs) Hey, Skip. (laughs) I heard him do it once. His name isn't Skip. He goes, he's been skipping church. I call him Skip. (laughs) Ken had his ways. (laughs) I hope I learned the good ones. So this transformation begins in the mind, and it's outworking through our behaviors. And the gifts of the Spirit are in the church, and that's where you get the transformation. That's where it works for you. So become part of the church. You know, I'm, I'm watching the men and women of our church discover themselves, discover their gifts and the things they give to the church. You know, I've told you, Brian came to the church a couple years ago and he said, you know, we have a ladies' Bible study. We don't have a men's Bible study. And I said, oh, you're so right. I'm so glad you're offering to teach that. You see, you don't get to tell someone else to use his gift. Use your own. Brian's a great teacher, as you know. And now he's gone. He left. He absconded. And I understand Don Violet did a great job yesterday. Now, I hadn't heard that. Fantastic. So that's up here. Great is here. Fantastic is better. No, but we have men willing to do this. We have ladies willing to share their gifts. You notice it says in here that the way you show, one of the ways you show love is be hospitable. That's not a suggestion. Christian people are hospitable. They want you to feel at home with them and in their home. Okay, so our first transformational experience was with God. Our second is with the people of God. All tied together. (coughs) So be transformed by the renewal of your mind. (coughs) Excuse me. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
And these things sum up the teaching of Romans 12 to this point. So having laid down all these directives, the apostle goes on to show the saint how he is to live before God. And note it begins with love. There's love and there is law. You know, there's a, a weakness today in the teaching of the church at large. And that is to set law and love against themselves where the Bible always puts them together. You don't come in to the people of God without respecting the laws of God. And that's intimately um, intertwined with your love for God. And I'll demonstrate that to you. Our initiation was through love. We came to him seeing our need for him and his sacrificial mercy toward us. But in our life, in Christ... We'll never be separated from the law of Christ. Paul tells us in the next chapter that love is the fulfillment of the law. That's interesting, isn't it? (coughs) Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love fulfills the law. Love is the law, and I'll show you that. The apostle goes on to quote the Lord, who made the same connection between love and law. Um... To the uh, Corinthians, he said this. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, witness, you shall not covet. Sound familiar? And if there's any other commandment, which is a law, right, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, if you love your neighbor, you won't kill him. And if you love your neighbor, you won't take his stuff. In fact, you won't long for his stuff. You'll be glad he has it. Because if you covet, that shows that your love is with hypocrisy. Maybe he'll give me that stuff I covet. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And I'm sorry, that's from Romans 13. I said Corinthians. John wrote this. Now by this we know that we love him if we keep his commandments. Love and law. Together. All the time. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. If you separate law and love... You've missed the point. So back to verse 9 on love. Before we get into the passage any deeper, I would ask you to consider a thing I spoke of in recent weeks with regard to the ancient Greek world's notion of love. They had the words, but they didn't have the nuances of love that were necessary for Paul to teach us the Christian faith. Greek is a very great language. And it was chosen by God to bring us the gospel. We may remember that though Paul included in this passage a teaching on spiritual gifts, that he did that elsewhere. He did the same thing in 1 Corinthians. I made this point last week. He he inserted between chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians both, both extensive teachings on worship and on exercising the spiritual gifts honorably, right? But in between those two chapters, he puts this chapter on love. Very famous chapter, right? People all over the world, Christian and non-Christian, 
say that kind of thing at weddings because it's so poetic and beautiful. I think they missed the point for the most part. But Paul didn't want to go on teaching about the gifts without reminding us of what love really means when it's without hypocrisy. So between these two chapters, he inserts this very famous, very poetic passage that some refer to as the Apostles' Hymn of Love. In chapter 13 of that letter, between the two chapters on the gifts of the Spirit and our conduct in the worship gathering, he inserts this lengthy passage. Now, do you think that's just haphazard? Do you think he stopped and said, oh, I think I'll tell him about love right now. And I don't have a word processor, so I can't erase that. So I'll just write it right here. I'll put it in the middle. Nobody will care. I, I don't think he worked that way. I think he was far more organized and purposeful. I suggest to you that Paul elaborates on the subject of love between the other two chapters because Christian notions of love were not sufficiently known in the ancient world. He was teaching them for the first time. And I was, um, and where they are known in the Christian church, the true character of love is often forgotten. So he had it written down. We spoke of the thing, same thing where humility was concerned. Remember I told you? What is it? Tapino frasune. <laughs> That's two Greek words that Paul had to put together to make the Christian notion of humility, of putting yourself below others rather than exalting yourself over people, because the ancient world had no concept of humility. And whatever concept of humility they had, they had no word for it. It was just a weakness to them. <clears throat> the Christians were weak because they would put someone else's needs above their own. <clears throat> The words available to him were words that spoke of humility as a human deficiency or a moral weakness rather than the spiritual strength that Christ taught with regard to thinking lowly of oneself rather than highly. And so in that epistle where he taught, he taught on the gifts rather extensively but thought it a good time to insert an eloquent statement on love. Not the popular sense of love, the biblical sense. The popular sense everyone knows. Oh, we fell in love. Oh, we fell out of love. Then how did you fall in it if you're going to fall out of it? Obviously, it was hypocritical, right? We know that because Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13 where we know that love never fails. It can't wear out, right? Isn't it interesting that on a smaller scale, he does the same thing here. He doesn't give two great chapters on the gifts, but he talks about the gifts extensively. But then he inserts this verse 9 where he speaks of love. Let love be without hypocrisy. He just finished saying, let he who exhorts, exhort. Let him who gives, give liberally. Him who leads, let him lead with diligence. And he who shows mercy, let him show mercy with cheerfulness. And then he talks about love. Same thing. The gift is of no use to the church if its motive is not love of the other person. So he speaks to the Corinthians by warning against harmful lusts and deceits and conceits, all the product of self-elevating pride. Only people, friends, could make a mess of a spiritual gift. You know, like I started out, only people could mess up love. It's such a wonderful... Thing. I mean, it's the essence of God. God is love. We're told several times in 1 John, right? 
And so Paul has to write this to the Corinthians about the gifts. Remember the body parts? He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Imagine the eye. I don't need any hands. (laughs) Nor again to the head, the feet, I have no need of you. I'm kind of glad that my feet don't do my thinking for me, but my head doesn't carry me around. Much rather, he said, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. We hide certain parts of our body for modesty, but we don't hide our faces, right? They're presentable. Most of them. Just kidding. God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, he writes, that there should be no schism in the body. You don't want a schism in your body. That's a break. You don't want that. You want it all contained, right? That the members should have the same care for one another. Friends, if my little pinky hurts when I go to bed, it'll keep me up all night. Has that ever happened to you? You know, you pull that hangnail off, and it's like, whoa, shouldn't have ripped that thing. (laughs) Middle of the night, it's like throbbing. It affects your whole body. You're weeping with that finger that weeps. He then asks, and this is Paul's custom, a rhetorical question. He loves to do this. This is called the Socratic method. Jesus used it. Socratic comes from Socrates. He says, are all apostles? Now, we know the answer. No, we're not all apostles. You're an apostle. I'm not, Paul. Are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues? There's something the charismatic world ought to learn. Not everyone speaks with tongues. Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And so the apostle makes his list. He urges participation that you use your gift, He explains the importance of the gift. And so the members gifted with certain talents and powers make up the church. Yet he anticipates that even though God has given you, God has saved you. And God has given you gifts. And God has urged you to participate in the edification of the church. He's still afraid you're going to mess it up. And it's been so messed up. He anticipates what? A selfish motive. A motive other than love is a wrong motive. And so he inserts a reminder of the nature of true Christian love. I have a story to tell you. But let me start by saying, whenever I am away, which isn't very often, I don't miss a lot of Sundays here, but I find someone to preach for me, and it has to be someone who loves the people and loves their souls. Um, and that doesn't mean they have to know you. They don't all know you, but they love Christ and they, and they are honored to be speaking to people's souls with the edifying words of God. They can't just come in here to fix you or to impose their judgment on you. And if you were only more like this, you know, I, I never want that to be the motive. And, it, and you can tell right away when that is the motive, when a speaker is speaking. And it's happened, and those people don't speak anymore here 
because you have to love the people. It's like telling someone else's kid what to do, reprimanding someone else's kid. Well, that doesn't go far if he doesn't know you love him. So I have a story. <clears throat> Some years ago, I'm 67, when I was 49, I had a friend who was that age, and uh, he died after a long illness. He died at 49. Um, not saved. The um, people at the <clears throat> funeral were not saved, to, to my knowledge. They didn't know Christ, but they all came out to honor him. He was a beloved friend. Karen knew him. And he came out, and you know how you do it <clears throat> um, at a funeral where they say anyone that wants to say something about Billy, that was his name, um, get up and talk. One after the other, people got up. There were friends. His brother got up. A lot of my friends, people who were not speakers, people who were not trained, you know, elocution rhetorical people. They didn't have the speaking gifts so far as I knew. Every one of them honored this young man so well. And I realized something that day. If you love the person you're speaking about, you'll speak well of him. It was more important to have the love than the knowledge the love was the prerequisite. And I realized, and you know what? I got a few years later to say this to his wife. She asked me about preaching and the ministry and all that, and I was, she was an old friend. And I said, I've used that illustration in my church, that people loved Billy so well that not one person gave anything less than a totally eloquent, loving rendition of his life because they loved him. If you love Christ, you'll speak well of him. If you love the church you'll speak well of Christ to them. That's the prerequisite. <clears throat> and I use this text to justify that. So we have the gifts. So we have the members of the body. But in order for them to remain members of the body, there must be ligaments. There must be connective tissue. There must be muscle mass and bones and skin. Otherwise, the parts float away. <clears throat> this, is, this is my extension to Paul's metaphor about the body. I suggest to you today that love between the members holds the body together so that the individual parts do not stray from the body nor cease to exercise their part in it. Love is the glue. It's the connective tissue between the parts. And so it's natural and it's logical that Paul would teach on love now. There are members, there are gifts, but without love, they're disconnected. And so he goes directly to love, and from love he goes where? To false love. Just as Jesus teaches on worship, and he shows you this false worship. There's worship true, there's worship false. Just as there's false humility, there's false love. And so to the Corinthians, Paul writes these powerful, poetic, beautiful strains. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, friends, which is a great gift, but I have not love, I'm a sounding brass. In other words, without love, my words are just noise. I'm noise. I'm noisy. My gift has made me noisy. I've become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. And so in Romans 12, as in 1 Corinthians 12, he offers the same regulation. Everything that you do in the use of your gifts must be regulated by love of the members. Don't be a grudging giver. If your gift is giving, give liberally. If your gift is hospitality, give it cheerfully and lovingly. If your gift is teaching, give it accurately. Give it conforming to God's word. A gift exercise in love builds up the receiver. It has been said knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so we have our answer to the question, what is hypocritical love? It's a use of the gifts of the spirit that exalt the giver rather than the receiver. And so in this chapter... As well, after he exhorts the body to use their God-given spiritual gifts for mutual edification of the whole church, he goes straight to love, from love to false love, from false love to a warning against evil. And from there to an encouragement to seek and to cling to the good. And he elaborates on the nature and practice of Christian love. For he's already told us, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Everything else fails. The other things pass away. Why? Because they're imperfect. Things like prophecies, he said, well, they'll fail. Things like tongues, they'll cease. Even knowledge will vanish away, the apostle tells us. Why? Because such things are tailored to our nature as it presently exists, and it exists with residual imperfections. But love is the perfection of the saint. Friends, if you can love well, if you could really love as Christ loves, you are perfected in him. Be perfect, he said, for I am perfect. Because I am God, and God is love. For now, Paul writes, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide, faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You do realize when you get into eternity with Christ, you you won't have faith, right? You'll walk by sight and not by faith, but love will still be there. It'll be there forever because it's God. Hope won't be there. There's nothing to hope for. You've got it all, baby. You're here. No, love will still be there, though. So verse 10, he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor-giving preference to one another. One more textual point. <clears throat> Where he said love without hypocrisy, he used the word agape. <clears throat> but when he says here, love one another with brotherly love, he uses a totally different word. See, that's the strength of the, of the Greek language. They have different words for different forms of love, right? 
He uses agape in the first instance, and he uses what? What's brotherly love? Philadelphia, right? It's not just a violent, crime-ridden city. It's brotherly love. Philadelphia. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. So I want to point out that there's a strength here. He never tells us to love God with brotherly love. We love God with unconditional agape love. There's the strength of the Greek language. I pointed out a weakness. Here's the strength, right? In English, we use the same word. I can say, you know, I love my wife and my new car and, um, and ice cream is right up there. But I mean, you know, we have the same word for all those things. So it's always the context in English that shows us what kind of love we're talking about. When you say, I love my wife, no one would mistake that for, for you to say, I love, you know, Pop-Tarts or something. <clears throat> Are there still Pop-Tarts? I haven't seen one since I was a kid, but I heard they're not extinct. I, I don't know. <clears throat> so the Greek notion of love has different shades of meaning for different expressions of love. In English, we have one word, love, but the context reveals the different shades of meaning for us. English is a great language for the gospel. You can say things in English in more ways than you can in any other language. And so Paul teaches that our Christianity is a way of life. And so here he shows how we are to be toward other people. Now, this is important. And this is a hard part of Christianity here because it goes against our nature. The exhortation here is about relationships. It's about brothers. It's about kindly affection. You can't show kindly affection without someone else. All of these things are body life. You can't do this alone. The exhortation is about relationships, and later he'll elaborate on the Christian life with regard to circumstances. Don't return evil for evil, he'll say. Right now it's between people. Later on it will be between different circumstances, as I read the whole text this morning. But for the moment, let's consider the relationship of kindly affection and brotherly love or giving preference to one another. It's significant to note that the scripture never urges us to express our love to God as brotherly. It's, it's different. Our, our love to one another is, comes from the word phileo. And I want to point out that it's a familial love. It's a family love. Paul wrote this to the Galatians. It's not in your notes. He said, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those of the household of faith. You, you have a love for the children of God that is not like your love for the world, although you love the world, right? I have many friends in the world that I love. It is not the same. There's a distinction. It's just really not the same, especially to those of the household of God. That Philadelphia. So when he speaks of love being expressed hypocritically, the use of the Greek for brotherly love is instructive here, isn't it? <clears throat> this is the difficult part of authentic Christianity, I think, or a difficult part. 
The the context undoubtedly suggests that our brothers and sisters in Christ should come as close to us in affection as our natural brothers and sisters. And I can show you that's exactly what he means. Throughout the scripture, it's demonstrated. In fact, it was Christianity that taught that our brothers and sisters in the faith ought to be closer to us than our own natural brothers and sisters. That's a difficult concept. Remember he said, he who loves father, mother, sons, daughters, wife, children more than me is not worthy of me. Right? That's kind of where this is going. It's hinted at, at least, all throughout the scriptures. It's shown in the relationship between David and Jonathan. Remember this? Jonathan was the son of Saul, the king of Israel, and Saul was so jealous of David, the anointed king of Israel, that he hated him and tried to kill him. But Saul's son was joined to David. Jonathan and David were joined together. They had a love for each other that neither of them could have for Saul. The natural relation did not usurp the covenant relation. Jonathan, again, caused David to vow because he loved him as he loved his own soul. 1 Samuel 20:17. He loved him as he loved his own soul. Jesus said that very thing, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. <clears throat> and remember that this made his brother David a closer relationship than his own father Saul, which I said. Saul became David's sworn enemy, but because Saul was related to David, David wouldn't hurt Saul. That was unhypocritical love. We know from David's whole biography that he was capable of hypocritical love, but he didn't show that here. Jonathan took David's part over Saul, and later David would honor his love covenant with Jonathan by showing mercy to, the, to his undeserving son, Mephibosheth. You know the story, I think. And so Jonathan said, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants. In another place we read of the covenant between them. We read, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. That's an ancient ritual. Covenant ritual. They exchange armor. It was symbolic that your battles are my battles and my battles are your battles. Your sword will fight my battles and my sword will fight your battles. And they actually exchanged armor. David might have got the better deal. Uh, Jonathan probably had some really cool armor being the king's son. Um, There's a brotherly connection here, a love, a commitment. It's not a natural commitment. It's a personal one. It's entirely spiritual. It is covenantal. The relationship is hinted at in the proverb which says, there is a friend which sticketh closer than a brother. Right? Remember the statement of Jesus. We read this from Matthew. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. You know, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and we learned Jesus didn't have brothers and sisters. And that Mary was a perpetual virgin all her life. 
And so, in her assumption, she was taken up to heaven like Elijah and never died. And she was also immaculately conceived by the Holy Spirit like Jesus. We learned all these things, and then you get a verse like this that clearly shows he had brothers and sisters. Where did they come from? I'm assuming they came from Mary. But that's an addendum to all what I'm saying here. And so they said, behold, your mother's outside. Your brothers and sisters stand outside. And one of them said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. (coughs) I think he means that literally. Right? You've taken a new family. I am much more at home with my Christian brothers and sisters than I am with my own unsaved family. Karen and I say that all the time. Except those members of the family that are also part of the family, right? And so I think from the plethora of examples we see that brotherly love is an extension of the natural love of one's siblings and other relatives. And by the way, the commentators by and large agree with this assessment. We are to love the brethren as ourselves, lest the love of Christ in us be mixed with what? Hypocrisy. And so I'll close with the apostle's words on the matter of brotherly love. The love of the brethren between one another. This is his 1 Corinthians 13 nod in the book of Romans. He says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. That's with familial love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence... Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints. Notice he went from brothers to saints. That means everyone in Christ. Friends, I can meet a stranger who is a Christian and feel close, more close ties than I do some of my worldly friends and relatives. And it's immediate. Distribute to the needs of the saints. Be given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind one to the other. Father, in Jesus' name, we ask that you cultivate in us this Philadelphia, this blessed love between the members that perfects the gifts and ministry of the church and binds together the people of God as we will be bound for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.